The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Okay, dude, I've just finished a storm, and you're in the midst of one? We are just out of uh, a classic New England nor'easter. Um... So today is the dry day, and then I think it rains again all day tomorrow or the next day. Mm, mm. And there's a there's rain virtually every day in the forecast now, which is which is karmic redress for the <laughs> month of like perfect uh, fall weather that we had before, which was like not hot, sunny, you know. Yeah, you know, you know, in New England, the other shoe is dr- is gonna drop. Yeah, but well, you guys <laughs> got hammered. Uh, yeah, you went straight from drought to landslide uh, conditions in in four days, ten inches of rain here in Santa Rosa. Yeah, uh, uh, in two days out at the coast, a friend of mine just just Saturday and Sunday, a friend of mine out at the coast had thirteen inches of rain. Uh, uh. Yeah. Uh, it was a it ceases to be helpful at that point really it's not i mean you know a lot of it ends up where you want it but a lot of it doesn't yeah i mean because truly we uh we run the risk of of landslides uh when we get rain packed up like this uh so that's a little that's a little concerning but you know honestly uh the risk of flooding and landslides is uh, because that can be so much more localized. Uh, it's way better than fire season. And so fire season is now definitely over um, without right. a doubt. And so oddly enough, we have something to be grateful for. So, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'm dry. <laughs> my boys are dry. None of my friends have a flooded basement. So we're just going to keep rocking here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Weather is weather just is. It's not good or bad. It just is. Yeah, I'm uh, kidding. Sometimes it's terrible. I I did not ride an inch this weekend though. I managed to go for a ride uh, for a walk on Friday night, but um, it was uh, well, I think I know how they feel in Mumbai. Yeah, monsoon <laughs> season and what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, alrighty, what are you pulling us through this week? So I was on a gravel ride the other day, uh, the usual sort of ramble or gramble, if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, the the sort that we go on around here where we kind of put together multiple little sections of trail with brief paved interludes. And I happened to be riding with a guy who first told me I should come on a ride like this on my road bike that had 28s on it. Okay. 28 at that point, 28s were new on my road bike. Um. So at the time, this was a pretty revelatory thing. Uh, we were certainly traveling more slowly, 
but uh, in the woods, but most everything was rideable. And what made it especially eye-opening then was that it wasn't the sort of thing we would do on a mountain bike. On a mountain bike, we'd hit, we'd hit a trail system and just work it over and over because you don't want to be spinning pavement on your mountain bike. Although, obviously, you can. I guess we probably started doing those rides in 2012 or 2013. My memory for dates is pretty bad. And at the time, gravel riding riding wasn't a thing yet, uh, mm-hmm. or it was just becoming a thing. It's hard to say because it seemed to to me like a lot of people rounded on the idea of gravel at the same time in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not in any way trying to say we invented gravel as a category. <laughs> um, I'm just saying that there were no gravel bikes mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. So as we were riding the other day, I said to him how mind-blowing those first few rides were and how it just changed my sense of what you could do with a bike, you know? Mm-hmm. It highlighted for me how parochial parochial we become very quickly, despite the fact that bikes and riding won't sit still, you know, either literally or figuratively. But it just seems like as cyclists, we're always trying to pin the thing down and specialize it, mm-hmm. you know, hone hone the idea of say a gravel bike too it's perfect whatever and then in doing that you sort of limit the terrain that you think that bike can take on and but it's the best at that particular thing and you know yep um and as good as and fun as those first rides i guess those first gravel rides were we then did go down the rabbit hole with gravel bikes and tires and on and on. And that paradigm is still shifting. And really, when you pick your head up and try to understand how we got where we are, you have to keep in mind that you can do anything with your bike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and by that, I mean the bike that you have now. The idea that you can't ride dirt because you don't have a dirt bike is absurd. Mm-hmm. Every bike is a dirt bike. <laughs> Every bike is a road bike. Mm-hmm. Um So what we think of in value as specialization has this downside to it as well, that it it sort of curtails our imaginations and narrows our thinking. I'm not giving back my very nice gravel bike, mind you. Okay. I'm just trying to make the point that our bikes don't limit us nearly as much as our lack of imagination does most of the time. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Does that jibe with your experience? Oh, very much. You know, when I... When I left New England for California, there were a couple of different things about my riding life that changed, and not for the better uh, in retrospect. Uh, and maybe I would even have said that at the time, except that when I made the move to California, I was also committing to a job that was 100% road bikes. So not riding mountain bikes uh, was mm, helpful to my professional outlook um yeah and finding dirt roads in southern california from where i was living at the time it was it was possible but you know you needed to go out of your way some later on when i moved to the beach cities it was just a a a silly impossible sort of endeavor uh i lived a long way from any dirt roads in redondo beach but when i was living in northampton there was a group of friends of mine and I, and on Sundays we would go out and we would hit uh, a certain number of dirt roads, uh, kind of ever changing. Um, we would always take in some dirt roads on those rides. And the funny thing was, 
this group was mostly triathletes. Um, so I, yeah, I know people are scratching their heads right now. I, you know, I can't explain it, but they were, you know, very fun people. And we had a terrific time doing that. They were mostly like hard packed dirt, uh, like you get right. in, in new England and not Rocky and, you know, on 25 millimeter tubulars, you could roll that stuff all day long. And during the week in between those Sunday rides, a couple of us were going out and scouting for more dirt roads, which in Western Massachusetts, uh, that <laughs> is you know, endless. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're never going to exhaust that endeavor. Some of those roads are now part of the D2R2 event. Um, we would, right. we would go North up into Deerfield. We would go, uh, West into Ashfield and Goshen and Cummington and Plainfield. Uh, we didn't go south much because you pretty much ended up in Springfield in a hurry. So that wasn't exciting. But yeah, I mean, I had, I had a mountain bike, but I rode single track on the mountain bike. I would right. ride roads to get the single track. But when it came to riding dirt roads, if I could ride a dirt road instead of a paved road on my mountain bike, as I was on my way to single track, sure, I would do that. Um, but I didn't go out looking for dirt roads on my mountain bike. Um, you know, yeah. so I, I, I entirely see what it is you're saying. And I'm with you a thousand percent. And I mean, the funny thing is the tubulars I was running back then were 25 millimeter through the... right. Through the fall, winter, and early spring, I was running 25s, and only during the, the heat of the summer would I run 23s on my bike. Uh, you know, Victoria Open, CGs, things like that. And uh, I can remember a couple of times, though, where I encountered stuff that was actually kind of rocky and bumpy and whatnot, and maybe a little wet in spots. I, you know, I have this visual memory of some of those places in my head and it's like, oh, on a gravel bike, I'd like be catching air off some of that stuff. Right. On a road bike with friction shifting, you know, Campanillo <laughs> super record and 25 millimeter tubulars, uh, I was clomping around in my, you know, duck footed cleats. Uh, sure. You know, one of the other things I didn't have was SPD pedals on a bike with drop bars. Uh, right. So. There were times where I definitely turned around and went back and I would rail those places with a gravel bike now, you know, but, uh, yeah, our bikes are way more, uh, able than I think we often give them credit for. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I know, I know that I have skipped rides cause I didn't have the right bike, which in retrospect feels so stupid. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I, I can see, I can see certain, uh, certain justifications. Um, I mean, if you're going on a mountain bike hammer fest ride and you're on a gravel bike, maybe that's not, you know, you're going to have a hard day. It will be an interesting day. That's for sure. But also, you know, so what? <laughs> <laughs> Yep. I mean, I can remember years and years ago, we're talking like eh, 86 or 87, somewhere in there, my specialized expedition touring bike that had a wheelbase, you know, almost as long as some tandems, um, 
<laughs> and uh, it had 35 millimeter tires on it when I first bought it. I eventually swapped those out for 32s and then eventually 28s. That was the smallest tire that I could fit on the rims uh, of those wheels because they were meant for touring. But I can remember right. riding the 35s and I'd cantilever brakes. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was hitting trails with that bike. Uh, you know, I, I was only beginning to learn that a mountain bike was even a thing at that point. This is Memphis. And, you know, we're 10 to 12 years behind anything that happens in California on a good day. So, yeah, I was riding trails and going over little, uh, little dirt mounds and whatnot on my touring bike. Sure. Why not? Yeah. It had a triple on it. I could get up stuff. (laughs) Not that there's anything especially long or steep in Memphis. Um, yeah. So why not? Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? And so what? Those are the, those are the takeaways from this conversation. (laughs) Winning. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, what do you say? Let's take a break and we'll be back in just a minute. Sounds good. The Pace Line is brought to you by The Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on Support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for your poll, Patrick. A couple weeks ago, in episode 256, I might add, I interviewed Rick (laughs) Vosper uh, to discuss the purchase of NorCal retailer Mike's Bikes by Pawn, the big Dutch conglomerate. Uh, Well, uh, to use a term of art, Pawn is at it again. (laughs) They just went and purchased Durrell Sports. And that's not just news. It's like a flipping event capital f capital e um (laughs) uh so i decided i needed to talk to rick again to help put this in perspective um and before we get to the interview uh i should mention that uh we refer to one of Durrell's divisions cycling sports group as what pawn purchased uh and that's a bit of a misnomer or a terminology fail on my part Pawn bought the whole thing, and we do report that correctly to some degree, even though we keep sticking Cycling Sports Group in there. They bought all of Durrell, which is Cannondale, GT, Charge, which is an e-bike company, Pacific, which you see in every mass merchant on the planet, Schwinn, Mongoose, Kidtrax, and Calloy. Uh, so, I mean... That's a lot. That yeah. is seismic. Yeah, well, at this point, in terms of bikes being sold... It makes Pawn the largest bike company in the whole world. And oh, by the way, bikes are just one thing that they do. So mm, Rick puts it that's in That's a disturbance in the force. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Well, here's Rick. 
Rick Vosper, man, thanks for joining me on the Pace Line. How are you doing? I am doing really well here. It's uh, beautiful fall weather in South Arkansas, and uh, the trails are uh, the trails are immaculately groomed, and folks are out having a good time here. That sounds way better than seven inches of rain in a weekend. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, congratulations. Um, so you and I spoke just a few weeks ago about uh, the big Dutch conglomerate Pawn purchasing the chain of bicycle retailers, Mike's Bikes, uh, here in the greater Northern California area. Um now they've just made a new move where they purchased the entirety of Drill Sports. What's going on, man? What do you see happening here? Well, um, first of all, anyone who thinks that these these two events are unrelated is uh, is not thinking very clearly. Of course, <laughs> they're related. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And we we need to remember that uh, the cycling sports group is Cannondale, GT, Schwinn, and a number of other brands. Mm-hmm. And when you combine these Durrell brands with the existing Pond brands, there's a whole ton of them in Europe as well as the ones we have in the USA. It makes the resulting Pond cycling division the largest group of bike brands in the world. Wow. It's bigger than Giant. It's bigger than Trek and Electra. It's bigger than Specialized. That's... That's really something. I mean, for someone to actually become a bigger bike company than Giant is, uh, that's no small achievement. Uh, no, it's, it is humongous. And um, now I'm talking about Giant, the brand bikes, not Giant, the, uh, the factories. So okay. we're just looking at the number of bikes sold under that, under that name. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Pond is, Pond is huge. And Every one of the brands that they have here in North America, which would include uh, Santa Cruz, Cervelo, uh, Focus, uh, they have some electric bikes from Gazella, as well as the Cannondale and, and GT brands. Every one of those brands has a single existential problem, which is they can't find dealers to sell their bikes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the reason they can't do that, there's plenty of great bike shops in the United States, but Trek, Specialized, and Giant have locked down floor space on the best of those dealers, and they're not giving up floor space to other brands. So, now, uh, the, the, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, please. So, so, the brands we're talking about are limiting their ability to grow, not by whether their products are any good, but simply finding space on the reseller floors. Right. Because so many dealer agreements stipulate 80% or whatever of your floor space Mm -hmm. will be devoted to our brand. Uh, And brands, uh, retailers who won't hew to that find themselves at lower dealer levels. So they're paying more for their bikes. They can't get some of the high quality stuff, some of the more, uh, desirable products. Uh, and so, you know, with a little arm twisting, they end up saying yes. And suddenly most of that retailer is all of one brand. Uh, I'm curious though. I mean, uh, what Pawn has purchased, some of those brands, particularly Mongoose and Schwinn are no real, no longer really IBD brands. Uh, mm-hmm. will they, And I'll admit, this is kind of a a tangential question to the larger question, but do you see them 
spinning those brands off or do you think they're going to uh, find some angle to make them IBD brands again? Uh, how does that fit in in with what their larger plan is in terms of having dealers to sell their product? Well, that, that's really an excellent question. And there's two questions here. One is, would Pond want to do that? And two is, can they be successful? Mm-hmm. You have to recall that uh, after Durrell Sports acquired the Schwinn and GT brands, they immediately took Schwinn into the mass market and they held up GT as an example. That was going to be their uh, that was going to be their IBD brand, uh, and it didn't work. So they took GT back into the mass market, and later on they came back and said, "No, we're going to make it a specialty retail brand again." And it just didn't work. Um, my feeling is the specialty retail market doesn't have a lot of appetite for bikes that have been traditionally sold at Toys R Us or Walmart. It seems like with this purchase, they've only gotten a couple of brands that really fit with what they're with the retail move they're making. The brands they've already gotten Santa Cruz and Cervelo and to a lesser extent focus and Gazella mm-hmm. um, are all excellent, strong brands with great product lines and maybe not as much marketing as they need. But the jewel in the crown of this is Cannondale, which is currently the number four bike brand in terms of the number of dealers it has. Mm-hmm. So they're going to inherit a whole bunch of Cannondale dealers, 550 of them, in fact, which is the number of dealers that Cannondale doesn't share with Specialized Track or Giant. Mm. But there's there's a lot more to this picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and to understand that, you have to take a look at, at Pond Holdings, the parent company of Pond. Now, Pond Holdings has its fingers in a lot of pies, including financial services, venture capital, equipment and power systems, agricultural products. But the biggest portion of its business is the transportation sector in the Netherlands and now partly in the United States, which I'll talk about in a minute. Their big, their big niches are bikes and automotive, mostly automotive. And mm-hmm. in the Netherlands, Pond has the distribution rights to Volkswagen, Audi, Skoda, Porsche, Bugatti, Bentley, and Lamborghini. Gosh. So, yeah. When it comes when it comes to Pond's business model in the Netherlands and now in the U.S., what it does is control distri- distribution of those brands and then sell their products through retailers, many of which it owns. Mm-hmm. I was talking with Dan Emfield, the uh, guy who runs the Slow Twitch uh, forum for triathletes, mm-hmm. and Dan told me buying up retailers is just what they do. Here's a case in point: in 2019, Pond purchased something called Indigo Auto Group, which I'd never heard of, but it turns out they have 21 car dealerships in California, Missouri, and Texas, and they sell. Porsche, Bentley, Bugatti, Lamborghini, Rolls-Royce, McLaren, and mainline brands like Land Rover, Aston Martin, Audi, and Jaguar. Wow. Compared to a purchase like that, acquiring the 12-store Mike's chain of stores is just pocket change. It's not even a line item on the annual report. (laughs) So, work with me now on this. We have Pond, which controls a whole stable of outstanding bike brands that can't find enough premium retailers to sell their products. Mm-hmm. And Pond has a business model of acquiring retailers to sell the brands it represents. 
In fact, it's already acquired one of the biggest dealer chains right in Specialized Backyard. Now, what do you suppose Pawn is likely to do in this situation? I'm not going to try to guess. <laughs> Let me give you a hint. It involves buying bike shops. Yeah. Now, here's another piece of the puzzle. Pond Holdings, the parent company's claimed turnover, which is a European term for gross income, is 7.3 billion euros, which is not quite 8.5 billion U.S. dollars. It's bigger than Trek, Specialized, and Giant USA combined. If Pond wants to buy bike shops, it can buy every bike shop that it wants to buy. At the same time, more and more leading bike shops are open to being purchased. Mm -hmm. They're fat with cash. They've paid off their debts due to the upswing in COVID sales, never mind the supply challenges. So it's a great time for owners to cash out. A lot of owners of these top bike shops got into business during the 1980s mountain bike boom. They're in their 60s now. They're starting to think about retirement, all of which leads me to believe that Pawn is about to go shopping for bike shops, especially specialized and Trek dealers. Trek already owns something like two to 300 dealers in the U.S., so Specialized will be particularly vulnerable, but there are also some 1,500 Trek dealers that Trek doesn't own. So they got plenty of chips on the table as well. So the big question here is whether the new Pawn brand of groups, Cannondale, Santa Cruz, Cervelo, and others, can buy enough bike shops in key markets to displace Giant as the number three player in the industry and go head-to-head -head with Trek and Specialized. If so... Pond will completely rewrite the bike brand power dynamic in the United States for the foreseeable future. And we should mention to our listeners, just as a little reminder, even though we've covered this previously, you used to be marketing director for Specialized. So you have some uh, some familiarity and former relationship with one of their big competitors. And you also uh, were marketing director for one of Pond's uh, brands, Cervelo. So... Uh, not that any of those folks are greasing your palms these days, but folks deserve to know that. <laughs> yeah. So full disclosure, yes, I have interests on both sides of that fence. Um, I also have a great love, particularly of the Cervelo brand and Specialized, because I was with them for so many years. But uh, yeah, they're, they're both serious players in a market that is likely to be changing a lot in the next weeks or months or years. Do you have any any indication based on what you're seeing uh, whether uh, Pawn is being more aggressive in its purchase of retailers or specialized? I know they're both purchasing dealers. Mm -hmm. Specialized role in all this is a little bit um, nuanced. It would be a polite term for it. <laughs> in response to Trek buying out a bunch of specialized dealers, including um, uh, dealers in the Northeast, uh, to the uh, bicycle sports shop chain in Austin, Texas, to dealers in San Diego uh, that were formerly mainline specialized dealers. Specialized issued a letter to all specialized dealers a couple months ago saying, look, if you're thinking about selling your selling your 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 bike shops, talk to us first, at least give us a chance to talk about this and we'll try to find you a buyer or we'll buy you ourselves and we'll see what happened. They have had a limited degree of success with this. My sense of it is Specialized does not want to be in the retail bicycle business as opposed to say Trek, 
who have an entire division of retail services that is devoted to them finding ways to run retail bike shops effectively. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Trek has been far more aggressive, but Specialized, who is playing catch up, is understanding that this is the future of the game. You have to, under- you have to understand that what I call the bike 3.0 model, which is major bike brands controlling major markets by locking down floor space in key dealers is the way business gets done in the United States. And the ultimate way to lock down floor space is to own the dealer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the absence of that, leading dealers in every market have been bringing more or more than one of the core brands. Now, the smaller dealers have, as you pointed out, the threat of pricing incentives held over their head to get them to cede huge amounts of floor space to a key brand. Larger dealers don't need that. They're in the highest tier, buy at the best prices anyway. Mm -hmm. So what they've been doing is rather than letting one of the brands have too much control over what they do, they bring in another brand and then play the two of them or sometimes the three of them off against each other. This is directly contrary to the modus operandi of the big brands. They want to lock down the dealer. Okay, so last question here. Uh, I mean, you're not a witch or anything, but I think you've got a crystal ball hidden there in your office somewhere. Uh, When you look into that, what do you think the next kind of shocking piece of news uh, or or just big reveal is going to be? What would you guess, you know, is going to pop up in the news next for cycling? Uh, You mean besides Pawn just bought this huge chain of bike shops in... Oh, I don't know. Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I have no, I have no advanced information on this. I just pulled this out because there's a couple of real big bike shop chains in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I don't have any insider information on that. Uh, you mean besides that? Uh, well, I mean, that would be a great example. Uh, yeah. If you think that uh, we're going to hear soon that Pawn has managed to buy uh, a, a chain of Trek dealers or a chain of specialized dealers before either Trek or Specialized manages to buy them, that would be, that counts. <laughs> well, when you say before, it could just be they could, they're they all three bidding on them, and Ponjus has the deepest pockets. Mm-hmm. As, as I point out, $8.5 billion in turnover every year. Uh, these guys are an order of magnitude bigger than any other bike brand uh, out there in the market. Uh, well, I mean, I guess for dealers who want to sell, uh, having Trek specialized in pawn and a bidding war over your bike shop, that sounds like a lovely thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, as we used to say in the yes. 90s. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't want to see bike shops homogenized, but that's just my own personal thing. I, certainly what I'd like to see most of all is if someone is going to sell a bike shop, it'd be nice if they were compensated for it. I, I completely agree. Um, hopefully the big winners of all this will be the people who put 20, 30, 40 years into making a bike shop successful and get some some profit for their labors. Very cool. Well, Rick... As always, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much, man. Always a pleasure. Again, that was industry veteran Rick Vosper. So, John, my big takeaway here isn't that Pawn has become the heaviest player in the bike industry, 
It's that Pond's desire to vertically integrate and own dealerships changes what bike shops are worth. Trek and Specialized have used a strategy of extending so much credit to dealers that they go upside down, and then the, sim- uh, the retailer simply turns ownership of the business over to the manufacturer. Hmm. <laughs> they come in and, you know, almost like a mafioso, hey, we'll help you out here. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll take that distressed uh, asset off your hands for you for very right. low. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, thanks to Pond, that's no longer a viable strategy for Trek or Specialized. Pond has such a need to own dealerships for what their strategy is, given that Trek and Specialized are muscling all the Pond brands out of their dealerships, uh, that they are now, you know, they're working hard to secure retail outlets for their many brands. And they have the ability to buy a store or chain of stores and wipe out their debt to Specialized or Trek. If I was a Specialized dealer, I wouldn't do what Rick said Specialized is telling their dealers to do, which is if you're thinking of selling, hey, come talk to us. I wouldn't talk to Specialized until after I'd already started talking to Pond, and then I'd tell Specialized, oh, by the way, Pond wants it. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, for the first time, and I don't know when, it sounds like it's a good time to be a bicycle retailer, if you want to sell. Um, I hope so, if you want to sell, if you want to sell. Uh, to me, this feels a lot like the minnows continuing to swim in the sharks but there's one more shark (laughs) (laughs) you know like a distressed asset is still distressed and uh a bike shop owner going out of business is still going out of business and maybe the financial hit for doing that isn't as ugly as it might otherwise be but it's still ugly and it's still not a great story and it still produces for the consumer a lot of homogenized bike shops well, you know, we're, we're specialized and Trek are concerned, uh, I'll agree. As I mentioned in the interview, uh, I walked into a Trek store uh, some weeks back and it was the single most uninspiring uh, visit to uh, a bike shop that I've ever had. Um, you know, when I talked to Matt Adams at Mike's Bikes, he said that their conversations were with Pawn were such that Pawn was saying, no, no, you go be you. You do you. Uh, we don't want to change that. Um, mm. And so I don't think we have any data yet that shows that Pawn-owned bike shops are all going to start to look the same. Uh, there's no talk of Pawn stores. And so I think it's fair to leave the jury... Um, you know, in the jury room for now, I, I, I you're don't... far more open-minded uh, than I am because what I think is uh, the players with the power will exert their power. That's just how it works, and so I think you'll see Cannondale GT stores that sell Cannondale uh, apparel and etc. And, you know, will Cannondale be on a more even footing with Specialized in Trek? Yes, probably. Does the consumer gain a whole lot from that? I don't I don't think so. I think, if anything, if you find yourself, if you're a bike brand uh, 
and I come look, I come out of the I come out of the independent bike company world. Yeah. And if you're one of those companies that uh, has struggled to find space amongst, you know, brands in a Trek store or a specialized store or, you know, um, guess whose bills get paid last where they do coexist, uh, Mm -hmm. then I don't think you feel great about what's going on because there's one more big company that's going to crowd you out. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there are. You know, with any change, there are always going to be some downsides, right? Yeah. I th- and, and here's what I think. In this sort of economy, and we've been in it for a long time, mergers, uh, mergers and acquisitions are high. Consolidation uh, continues apace. N- none of that helps the consumer. And none of that helps the small business. Yeah. That all helps the big guys. Now, Pawn may be striking back against... Uh, you know some of the brand tyranny of the other big players but it's you know in godzilla versus mothra tokyo still loses <laughs> truth uh yeah yeah um truth bomb kaboom yeah yeah i hope that you're right i hope that you know free love reigns and that uh all those little um middle finger in the air bike shop owners who only do that business that they do because they refuse to conform to whatever path society uh, laid out for them uh, continue to be able to rebel in their small ways and fight the good fight for uh, the bicycle life. I hope that that's true. Well, you know, let's consider that when I talked to Rick last time, episode 256 people, uh, he, (laughs) you know, I had talked to Matt Adams and and Matt said uh, Pawn is uh, telling us that they're hands off, that they're not going to tell us to carry any of their other brands like, say, Cervelo. Uh, And then, you know, when I talked to Rick, he was like, you know, come on, they're going to tell Mike. Mike's bikes to carry Cervello. That's just a matter of time. Or they're going to make it financially advantageous for him to do so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I I think this is an argument to uh, view this with mm, some suspicion, as you're suggesting, and not quite the level of uh, rose-colored pie-in-the-sky naivete that uh, I I seem to be living in right now. (laughs) Well, look, I think if you like monster movies, and I do, it's exciting to watch. (laughs) But... All those Japanese army soldiers with the machine guns that get uh, torched, uh, those are still tragedies. I don't know. I think I think um, what works best in a bike shop is a lot of variety and character. I like to go into a bike shop like nothing makes me sadder than going into a bike shop and not seeing a single thing that I'm interested in. And it's happened. Yeah. It has definitely happened. Um there's nothing sadder than that. And okay, I'm a bike nerd. Like if you're just a regular cycling enthusiast and you need a light or you need a this or you need a that, maybe every visit to every bike store excites you. But my feeling is that we need the uh, chaos and creativity of bike shop owners much more than we need our corporate overlords to uh, optimize our experience for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I'm, I'm a malcontent. <laughs> Everyone knows that. I mean, I, I just think you. whenever something like this happens, 
I and you know, you know the world I come from. I worked at Seven, which is a custom bike builder, although they are different than most because they sell at retail. So I I worked a lot in the retail world. But I think of companies not just like Seven, but Moots, mm-hmm. Harley, Allied, all of those companies that are doing really good, really good work with really mm-hmm. good people, but they're going to get squeezed out and it's, it becomes harder and harder for them to find space at retail the more of these big players flex their muscles and try to jam more bikes through, you know, uh the retail channel you know before we move on to paceline picks uh i want to do a little update so i talked and i don't remember which episode this was but i talked about the adventure i had in in routing uh hydraulic hoses and di2 wires uh through the <laughs> yeah. handlebar um and then um a friend of mine uh said hey DI2 is a bus system. You don't need quite that many wires. All you need to do is make sure everything is plugged into something. As long as it's plugged in, it's a little bit like plumbing. You know, the water will get there. Um, And so I didn't need that one wire, you know, leaving the handlebar, passing under the stand and and then re-entering the handlebar. I could get rid of that little uh, extender thing. And so day before yesterday, I decided, oh, hell, screw it. I want it to look clean. I'll do that. And so I ripped everything apart and I reinstalled everything without that little bit and swapping out one longer wire for the one Y-shaped wire. And I managed to get the whole thing done in about two hours. So... (laughs) You know, uh, there's something for, for everyone. I completely alarmed with my tale of six hours of woe and headache. Um, you know, I managed to do it with a little bit of practice now in just about two hours. And let me add that I also routed uh, the housing for a dropper post through this handlebar, which some people said, no, that's too many things. You can't actually do that many things with this handlebar. But I did. For uh, those of you who want to catch up on the begin, who want to watch the prequel to this story, uh, <laughs> read Patrick's post all internal uh, that ran last week on the site. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just point out that it's excellent that it only took you two hours to uh, make that change you just described, which is about the amount of time it would take you to build a complete a bike with cable actuated brakes and shifting. This is true. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Ah, the price of progress. Yeah. I, you know, I recall like when I was building bikes out of boxes, you know, working for a retailer, some of those bikes were so well assembled at the factory that I could get them assembled in 45 minutes. I, granted, I was yeah. not installing cranks, bottom bracket, anything like right, that. Right. But um, yeah, it is possible to spend a lot less time than that on a bike. And if you yeah. are busy taping housing to the outside of a handlebar, it can go really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's and, actually a great segue to the pace line picks. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's move on. What do you have? Well, uh, the e-bike I ordered in May and talked about on one of the very first uh, episodes that I uh, 
was co-hosting mm-hmm. uh, back when I thought I was only pinch hitting for a week or two. Um, <laughs> that bike finally arrived late last week. Uh, the original ETA was for mid-August. Mm. And what was interesting to me was that the company I ordered it from, Van Moof, sent me updates when it when it left the factory and then when uh at least when it at least theoretically arrived in port and then again when it reached their distribution center um suffice it to say the time it between it reaching port and it arriving at my house was about a month Mm. um but to have to be able to break down it was it was like a window into the supply chain crisis Mm -hmm. uh that that everyone is experiencing with everything right now so i found that very interesting um the bike as i said it's a van moof it's their x3 model um van moof makes city oriented e-bikes and unlike a lot of what's out there they look very designed in the sense that the (laughs) front wheel motor is integrated in the frame the gearing is automated the lighting is integrated and they look like something from a Dutch design sh- show, which is basically yeah. what they are. <laughs> yeah, it, this it looks like bike. something from Ikea, but without the particle board. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, it looks like a bike that someone has sketched on a piece of paper uh, that has come to life. So this is a bike I picked for a variety of reasons. Um, it's mainly for my older son to get him from school to sports to his part-time job without having me having to drive him all over the place Mm -hmm. and because we live on the top of a long steep hill an e-bike seemed to be the only way to get him consistently traveling by bike oh if i he would ride his bike in certain scenarios but like only if the weather was good and only if you know he wasn't you know if he was going to a sports practice he was then reluctant to ride back up the the big steep hill blah 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 teenage excuses i'm a terrible father so um (laughs) the x3 doesn't look dorky or at least not as dorky as a lot of e-bikes and it's not as pricey at 2200 bucks uh you can spend a lot um and there's a lot on the market now this is true since van move sells customer direct they can afford to maintain i think that lower msrp i think if they were selling through retailer stores it would be a thirty five hundred four thousand dollar bike as a general rule i want to say and this is important to me to clarify i prefer to buy a bike from a bike shop Mm -hmm. uh, and i don't mind paying a premium for that the time i ordered this bike the van move was on the shortest lead time um so it didn't it really be turn out now. that way. <laughs> it might be even now. Although my local bike shop uh, does have uh, e-bikes in stock, which is interesting. Um, the lead time turned out to be much longer than than I uh, thought it did. And so, you know, had I known what i known, I might have made a different choice. I'm not blaming Van Move for that. That's the global su- supply chain. Here's what I can tell you so far about this bike. My wife has ridden it and likes it. Both kids have ridden it and think it's rad. My inclination is to resist electrification because I believe in pedaling. But much like my take on glamping, that it's not Mm -hmm. bad camping, but rather better hoteling, my take on the e-bike 
is that it's not a bad bicycle. It's a better moped. Mm. So, I, you know, I, it's not a two-stroke engine, and it's not just as lame as hell. So, my previous mm-hmm. view on e-bikes was, and look, I know all the great reasons to get an e-bike. You know, couples that wouldn't have ridden together now ride together. People who just don't have the ability uh, to get up and down hills or don't want to sweat. I get it. There's a lot of great reasons to buy an e-bike. Just none of those are my reasons. Um, but what I can tell you is I don't think of an e-bike as an e-bike anymore. An e-bike is a moped. It's just a better one. Well, I I mean, yeah, it's substantially better because if you're on a moped, someone is going to point and laugh. Actually, probably most <laughs> people will point and laugh. And if you're on an e-bike, people are like, oh, that looks cool. Is it really fun? You know, right. it's, or, it's or, hey, wow, that's fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's funny that you see a moped and you think, God, it's slow. Get out of the way. But if you see an e-bike, you're like, wow, it's fast because mm-hmm. you just you're thinking about it is different for no very good reason well a moped is an emasculated motorcycle um if you say so <laughs> okay i do <laughs> i just i just did yeah i mean i uh, think mopeds are for um i think mopeds are brilliant i really think they are i think they are i love their dorkiness uh <laughs> i love their like perfect 70s solution to a perfect 70s problem uh I love mopeds. I, 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 I'm all in on mopeds, but you know, they have terrible little engines. Um, Mm -hmm. they are really no longer a good solution to that problem, but an e-bike is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, trying to pedal a moped is an exercise in (laughs) abject suffering and frustration. Pedaling an e-bike without a motor is not crazy. It's not as much fun. But it's not no. silly. Yeah. Pedaling this a moped bike weighs is 40 pounds. Yeah. 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 Not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, so <laughs> I want to be real clear because this is Paceline Picks. I haven't ridden this bike enough to tell listeners that they should buy one. But in picketing, picking it this week, I wanted to wade into the shallow end of e-bikes and how to think <laughs> about them. As usual, I'm a latecomer to what is clearly a growing party. But I hope that's just because I try to be really thoughtful about ab- adopting new technologies and not that I'm a curmudgeonly uh, jerk, although I suspect the latter is at least partially true. Curmudgeon, yes. Jerk, less so. <laughs> Would you put your kids on any bike? I mean, your kids are younger than my kids. Uh, yeah, I totally would. I absolutely would. Um, and in some ways, I'd prefer that to like, I mean... Philip, my eldest, is 12. In four years, he's going to be, you know, uh, legally able to go out and get a driver's license and drive a car. That kid in a car just seems inconceivable. Well, the kid that I bought this for is able to drive. Mm -hmm. But driving driving here uh, doesn't make... It's just not that awesome. You know, there's a lot of traffic. Parking is a pain. Um, Insurance is expensive. You know, my son, when he goes out, he doesn't want to drive. He he walks a lot of places. The e-bike will um, make those trips faster for him. 
Um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't want to be out with his friends on a Friday night with a car. Um, because <laughs> where we live, you just, the distance is like, everything is dense. You know, you don't need it. I, I'm reminded of that scene from uh, Swingers uh, when uh, all the guys get in their cars and they, you know, they leave one club and go to another and they all drive like 40 feet and then get back out of their car. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. It, it, I mean, well, our, our mutual friend, Richard Freeze, uh, yes. his eldest, his son, uh, last I knew guy, he's now in his twenties. He's never had a driver's license. Right. Has never driven. Yeah. Just rides a bike everywhere. Yeah, so I have a uh, I, my nephew is is uh, nineteen. Didn't get his driver's license. Didn't bother. Yeah, so I mean, there are places like you know the Greater Boston Metro where it's not a silly thing. You also have uh, far more adequate public transportation than Absolutely. we do. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful that I can keep my boys out of cars for as long as possible um yeah it's a you know gasoline driven cars it's a dying tech well what's funny is i have an electric car now and that thing is fast like i don't want to put my kid in it because it's (laughs) it's like a hot rod Uh, it accelerates like it's ridiculous wow it accelerates like an e-bike anyway well there you go (laughs) yeah what's your pick for this week Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the rains have returned to Northern California and fire season is totally and completely over. Hooray! Now we return to flood (laughs) season, though, which is to say that being wet on rides is a thing. When the trails get super wet, I stay off them. You know, I don't come back from rides. Because you're a good person. Yeah, I don't like to look like a dirt clod. I just look like a clod. Uh, (laughs) But I'll still ride some fire roads on one of my gravel bikes. This time of year, though, I can end up with very wet feet and gunk inside my shoes. And I'm a fussy, fastidious sort. So gunk inside my shoes is undesirable. Um, yeah, it's a bummer. You know, kind of like long-haired teens. Pearl Azumi <laughs> has introduced a new product this year called the Gravel Gator. Uh, when I saw it in their catalog, I was like, oh, hell yeah. I became a fan <laughs> of gators 30 years ago in Nordic skiing. Um, just that little bit of protection. And for anyone who doesn't actually know what a gator is, because they've lived in a normal part of America, uh, a gator is a small uh kind of tubular piece of fabric that covers the top of the shoe and extends some distance up your ankle uh so uh these rise to just above the ankle and feature a strap for under the shoe to hold them down in place and then a clip to hold down the front uh, over laces or a boa or whatever closure your shoes have i don't know how they would work with a velcro uh strap though they, they might catch just fine they are plenty breathable and feature a dwr coating that makes them shed water like a pane of glass they won't keep your feet dry if you submerge them in a creek but they will help keep sand and gravel out of your shoes if you do dunk your feet and i can assure you my feet were willing to get a part-time job and earn the 30 dollars these things run <laughs> There will be a link in our show notes. Uh, 
how it is no one else has thought of this, I don't even know. But congratulations to Pearl Izumi for dreaming it up. Well, you you know I've done a lot of trail running the last uh, year or two, and mm-hmm. I do see people at races wearing gaiters. And I always think that they look silly. You know, everyone at a trail race, I, we've talked about this. It looks like uh, it, uh, freshman arrival day at Clown College at the beginning of a trail yeah. running event. Everyone's in bright colors and has all sorts of strange compression <laughs> crap on. So everyone looks like a clown anyway. But um, I can tell you that, yeah, I've had so much mud and gunk and crap in my shoes the last two years. And it really is such a bummer it is such a bummer and like stopping in the middle of whatever you're doing to like clean your shoes out mm-hmm. which never goes as well nearly as well as you hoped yeah so i i i could see i could see employing a pair of these i uh th- these things are so cool i sort of look forward to the weather weather getting worse yeah uh, yeah, I'm I strange that. that way, uh, but then yeah. we've established that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. That's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Are you doing anything fun this weekend? I, um, I may be returning to block Island from whence Whoa. I've recently, uh, come just for a, a quick, a friend of mine is going to be there and I might just go down and get some nature on me. Um, but, but the rain is promising to rain. So I'm really into that. I don't know if my family is. Mm, mm. What about you? Well, uh, I've, because I redid that bar, I've been making progress on building the allied echo. Um, unfortunately last night, just as I thought I was, as I was really getting close to, um, having all the things to run, run that need to be run. I found out the, uh, the fork insert uh, that keeps you from crushing the steer tube. Um, I I miscalculated the order in which that's inserted, and I think it needs to go into the stem before it goes into the fork. And so now I have to redo some stuff. But I'm hoping that by Saturday morning the bike is finished and I'll get to go ride it. So that's yeah. that's my big. Uh, anytime I'm not playing with verbs in a novel, that's what I'll be doing. Pedaling a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go, I want to put in a plug for Revolting, the podcast that John is doing, along with Steve Knievel of All Hail the Black Market. As I've mentioned, it's not a cycling podcast in the traditional sense, but it is terrific, not revolting. Um, It may be also fair to say it's a meandering listen. Um, if you go in for that sort of thing, and I do. Um, and as for those other podcasts I've been hinting at, the first of them launches next week. It's called The Crash, and it's all about unexpected lessons and silver linings that come with falling off a bike. Uh, it's not about the gore. Uh, our first guest is frame builder Richard Sachs, who told me a story I'd never have expected and perfectly typifies what I was hoping to do with this podcast everybody keep those questions coming you all are sending great stuff if you got an idea please drop by the cycling independent and put a suggestion in the comments we hope you've enjoyed the show and if you have please leave us a good review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it makes us easier for other listeners to find until next week i'm patrick brady with john lewis thanks for listening to the pace line